Hi, this is T. Michael Coleman, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jamalong, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jamalong. Um, this is the first of two extremely special episodes that I want to share with you um, to celebrate Dot Watson's 100th birthday, which would have been today, March 3rd, 2023. Um, Back in November, I was doing a bit of reading and realised that this year was going to be Dot's 100th birthday, and I had a little thought that maybe I'd talk to a couple of people and put something together to celebrate it. And so I sent out a couple of emails, had a couple of chats with people, thought, cool, I'll have a nice hour-long episode that celebrates Dot. And then I emailed a couple more people and people just kept saying yes. And people kept telling me who else I should talk to and I just kept having conversations and it's been a joy. But I ended up with hours and hours of material. Um, And what I've done is I've edited them down into two episodes. This is the first and there is a second also out now. Um, So go and grab that one as well. And it's been such a joy putting these together, I cannot tell you. Um, And I've split them roughly along two lines. The first one you're going to hear from people who've worked with Doc, played with Doc, uh, and are sort of having a hand in carry on his legacy. So you're going to hear from Happy Tram from Homespun Tapes. You're going to hear from John McEwen all about recording uh, the Will the Circle Be Unbroken record. You're going to hear from T. Michael Coleman and Jack Lawrence, who spent years between them playing with Doc. Um, you're going to hear from Lindsay Craven, who's the Millfest Artist Relations Manager, who is working on booking acts for Millfest. And you're also going to hear from Ted Olson, who's a professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University. But he also wrote the book that accompanies the Doc Box set of Life's Work that came out last year. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, these are all new interviews, the stuff with... T. Michael, Jack Lawrence, John McEwen, none of this has been heard before. These are all interviews people agreed to do for these episodes. Um, And one of the joys of doing this is just how much people were happy to talk about Doc and happy to talk to me who they didn't know about Doc and just share their time and their memories. And it's been an extraordinary experience, and I really hope that you get something out of it. So I'm going to start off with the conversation I had with Happy Tram from Homespun Tapes, who sort of talks about working with Doc um, and how he first got to hear him. I think when the first Watson family album came out on Folkways was the first time I ever heard Doc. And my friends and I were listening to it and we were just blown away. We had never heard anybody, especially play Phil's on the guitar the way he did. It was, it was a completely new experience. Um, most guitarists we knew maybe were pretty good finger pickers like Merle Travis or Libba Cotton or people like that. But those lightning fast, absolutely clean, clear fill-ins that he played while in the middle of a song um, just uh, just knocked us out. We just didn't know what was going on. And uh, then he came to New York. Um, I think he and Clarence Ashley um, did a concert for Friends of Old Time Music. Uh, in New York, which was an organization that, as the name uh, implies, they brought a lot of old-time blues and country musicians to the city. And uh, um, so we got to see Doc in person there and also at Gertie's Folk City, uh, the premier New York City folk club, um, which was the main place we used to go in the early 60s to hear all these legendary people and to, to hear doc and Clarence Ashley and also many other people 
in those days, you, you, we barely ever saw photographs of these people, much less see them in person. It was like some mythology coming to life. Uh, you, you know, it was, uh, it, it was quite amazing to, you know, or somebody like Mississippi John Hurt to suddenly see him in the flesh playing at a little cafe in Greenwich Village. It was just, or any of those people, um, Lightning Hopkins or, um, you know, it, it just, it just made everything just three dimensional. It was like it, you know, these people that you only heard on record and barely knew what they looked like. So the same was true of Doc, um, you know, and of course we thought he was a backwoods um, Appalachian guy, you know, unschooled, whatever you think about, you know, when you're a city person listening to those old records. And, uh, you know, he was this very sophisticated, interesting, intelligent person, you know, who, who it's true he had not been to the city much at that point. Um, and he was brought to the city by Ralph Rinsler, as I remember the first time I heard him. Ralph was acting as his manager and as his uh, kind of go-between. Ralph was a, was a wonderful guy, um, and and he was very, uh, very good for Doc and Bill Monroe, both. Um, bringing them to young audiences in, in urban areas. Um, so that was my introduction to Doc, but I didn't really get to know him very much until a little bit later, a few years later, my brother Artie and I used to tour around colleges and some folk festivals around the Northeast. Um, and we'd run into Doc and Merle quite often on the sort of on the trail, so to speak. Um, and kind of became friendly with them. We, you know, we'd sit backstage and have conversations and, um, Merle especially was, um, an interesting guy and was very, um, basically very shy and a little withdrawn at first. But once you got to know him, he, he became a kind of a different person. So we became friendly with Merle. Um, I would say more in backstages and, you know, uh, in the parking lots of festivals. And then I had this idea. We had been, we had been doing homespun at that point for, uh, a few years. We could maybe nine or 10 years by that time. And I already started reaching out to more traditional players than people who were just in my, uh, New York circle or Woodstock at that point. So I broached the idea to Merle about doing a lesson on his uh, guitar styles. And Merle, who, as I say, was a very reticent person when it came to speaking, especially in public. He rarely spoke on stage, as you probably know. Um, it took a little convincing to actually get a microphone up and, and talk about this stuff. But he eventually said he would do it. And so I made a trip down to North Carolina, visited Doc and Rosalie and Merle and, and spent two or three or four days hanging out at their house and um, made some initial recordings of Merle. And Doc sat in on guitar and backed him up, um, but definitely did not want his name associated. He really only wanted Merle associated with this. 
He didn't want it to be a Doc Watson project. He wanted it to be a Merle Watson. And um, actually, I'm going to backtrack a minute. I think the first sessions I did with Merle, he came to Woodstock. Um, so uh, I think he came to Woodstock on his own. And I remember him. He came and stayed with us. And uh, the first session that I did, I just like I did with all the other early homespun audio tapes, just set up a mic and with my little reel-to-reel recorder, wall and sack or whatever it was in, in the house, very low tech. Um and sat and asked Merle the questions and asked him what he used for a slide and how he played these different songs. And Merle was very taken by Mississippi John Hurt. That was his, more than even his dad, that was his main influence. He loved John Hurt's fingerpicking, and he loved that whole style of music. So, you know, we'd go out to eat or, you know, at the local Woodstock joints. He he just loved the that atmosphere, and I introduced him to some of the local players. Um, I think he met Paul Butterfield and Rick Danko uh, in Woodstock, and he he seemed to be having a great time. And I think we did the initial sessions there. Um, and uh, in fact, I have some pictures of him at a barbecue in our backyard. And actually one of the visitors who also was there at the same time was Robin Williamson from the incredible string band. And so they got to beat each other in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of a funny uh, little meeting. And um, Merle very much came out of his shell. You know, he, he's very, as I said, he's very shy and reticent at first, but um he became much more sociable and as the time went on. And um, then I did go down to North Carolina after that. And then Doc backed him up on a bunch of things. And um, Rosalie made dinner and breakfast. Biscuits. First time I ever had biscuits and gravy and all that mm. Southern stuff, you know, sausages. And um, so, you know, we, we got to know them fairly well that way. Um and, of course, when Merle was in Woodstock, he loved Jane, my wife, who was also my uh, partner in Homespun. But um, he and Jane got along really great, too. So when we put out this, now these were on cassettes, the first series that we put out on the guitar styles of Merle Watson. And Doc and Merle were absolutely thrilled. I'm so, And I'm sorry, Doc and Rosalie were totally thrilled that Merle had something under his own name at that point. He was always mm. so in Doc's shadow and a little reluctant, I think, to be on the road with Doc and to be doing so much traveling and so much responsibility to look after Doc that the fact that he did something on his own was a big source of pride for Doc and Rosalie, and they always mentioned it whenever I saw him. Um, so, um, the few times that I went to visit them in deep gap, they just welcomed us with open arms because that, that meant so much to them. And of course, after Merle's very untimely and sudden passing, um, they were even more, um, loving in their appreciation 
of what we had done. And in fact, at Merlefest for many years in a glass case with other memorabilia of Merle's on display was his homespun cassette series. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a very meaningful thing for all of us to have worked with him in that way. And then did that sort of lead on directly to doing some work with Doc as well for Homespun? Yes, I think uh, once we got that out of the way and Doc knew that we weren't exploiting him, um, we went to, we set this up ahead of time, of course, uh, with Ralph Rinsler and um, some of the people at Merlefest. And we got our own Homespun workshop stage at Merlefest. And this would have been around 92, maybe something like that, 91 or 92. And we set up a whole series of workshops, brought a film crew with us. Um, and um, we taped a couple of days of workshop sessions. And Doc agreed to do one. Uh, so we that was our first. It was called um, Doc's Guitar. Uh, so, and again, that was, I think the first time doc ever actually explained on camera what he was doing. Um, so I think that was a very meaningful and historic thing for us to work with him beforehand, tell him what kind of things we wanted him to explain. And he did both finger picking and flat picking. So he would, um, play and then explain, um, you know, deep, a deep river blues or black mountain rag and all these, you know, show stoppers that he would do at almost every performance. So he was doc actually talking about it and slowing it down and, um, giving people an opportunity to figure out how to do it more or less on their own. And Mike Seeger was there. We had some great people in the, in the room there, you know, who were also doing workshops so, you know, that was also really a great couple of days. And Doc was very pleased with it. He was pleased with the way it came out. And a few years later, I, we asked him to do another one just on his flat picking. And we went back to Wilkesboro, where, where Merlefest takes place, and set up a a film crew again. This time it was just Doc, and he had asked for Steve Kaufman, who had done a lot of work for us as a, you know, he's a fabulous flat pick guitarist and was in awe, like all of us, of, of Doc. But Doc specifically asked for him to be his um, kind of interlocutor, if you will, his um, the guy who, who asked him the questions and led him to create something that was meaningful and, and good for other pickers. Um, so again, we went and visited them in, in deep gap and spent a couple of days there and, uh, and then went to this nice studio at the, you know, at the college um, in Wilkesboro, Wilkes community college, it's called and spent a day shooting that video with doc. So we're immensely proud of, uh, of having done that, been really the only ones I think that had done that kind of work with him. And, uh, we stayed friends and, you know, stayed close connecting whenever we saw them. When he would come to New York, we'd go to the show and always sit backstage and 
um, you know, hang out with him. He was a, the doc was a fabulously interesting guy. Uh, very knowledgeable about many, many things beyond, uh, just the guitar and, and traditional folk and mountain music. I, I came to appreciate over the years how, um, wide ranging his knowledge of a lot of things was. I'm sure there are other people that could speak to this as well. One time when we visited him at Deep Gap, um, he was on the roof of his house fixing the shingles on his roof. <laughs> and, you know, for somebody even, I'm, I have perfect sight, perfect vision, and I've never been on the roof fixing the shingles. So it's not something I would necessarily do. Um, and I know he wired his house for light. Um, he was, if, if he hadn't been blind from a very early age, who knows what he might have done? Probably not music. He probably would have done science or engineering or any number of other things. He was just a remarkable guy. And, um, mainly after that, I would see him at Merle Fest every year backstage and, We'd hang out and just chat and always super nice, always asked about the family, about my brother who sadly passed away in 2008, but Doc always expressed, you know, remorse about that too. So we have a nice relationship. I can't say I knew him as well as people like Michael Coleman or Jack Lawrence or the other people that spent much, many, many days and weeks and years on the road with Doc. But I always felt a closeness to him. And um, Jane, my wife, did also very dear. And, and also Rosalie, who always greeted us with great love and affection when we saw her. I think that's a lovely conversation to have kicked this whole thing off with. Um, the next person I spoke to, these aren't in any kind of order. These are just me trying to group things together in some form that makes sense. Um, and I spoke to John McEwen. Now, John is a founding member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and he was instrumental in putting together the Will the Circle Be Unbroken record, which played a huge part in Doc coming to the attention of the world. Um, and you know, I just feel so blessed to have had the chance to talk to John about this. Um, he was very generous with his time and just, you know, a fascinating chat about such a influential record so here's john McEwen of the nitty gritty dirt band i didn't know it but are you familiar with his album uncle charlie and his dog teddy yeah well that had two bluegrass tunes on it Les wanted to do clinch mountain backstep i did too and but i wanted to do randy lynn rag and i didn't know at the time that doc watson was from the clinch mountain area but he heard this album. Merle Watson played it for him, his son. And I didn't know Earl Scruggs would ever hear this. I hoped. Randy Lynn Rag was named after his son, Randy Lynn. And <laughs> Gary Scruggs told me he was he heard Bojangles and I had to get it. I had to go buy a copy. And he went to the store, they were sold out, so he bought the album. He listened to the record, Bojangles. Oh, good. That's it's the one. He took it home. His dad listened to, that's nice. That Bojangle song is nice. And then he played some of Shelley's Blues. Then he played Randy Lynn Rag. And 
Well, Earl said, let's go meet that boy that played Randy Lynn Rag the way I intend to. And a month later, they came to our first Nashville show. That led to the friendship that six months later, I asked Earl Scruggs in Colorado, taking him back to a hotel after every night for five nights. Earl, would you maybe would you maybe record record with the nitty gritty? And he goes, I'd be proud to. Now the next day, no, the next week, Doc Watson, oh, I called my brother and said, Earl said yes. And then I, Doc Watson was there the next week, and I asked him, I was a little braver, although I never met Doc, uh, Mr. Watson, would you like to make a record with us and uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and, and Earl Scruggs? <laughs> it was kind of, uh, oh, if Earl's going to be there, I want to pick. And I had admired Doc ever since that Newport folk music album. You know, he was playing Doc's guitar, yeah. and burning up Doc's guitar. He's in the middle of it, he says, the sun's hot, ain't it? Or something like that. And uh, Deep River Blues and stuff. And I'd admire, admired Earl for forever. And on Monday, my brother said, I'm going to get Merle Travis. And he called Merle Travis. And uh, anyway, that's how we got Doc. And then the album, three weeks into into that process, is when we told the other guys in the Dirt Band, we're going to go to Nashville and make a bluegrass album. <laughs> I didn't want to. Bill and I, my brother and I, decided not to tell the guys right off because Jeff had a nickname, Doctor No. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I said, we don't want Doctor No getting upset. So when we could come to Jeff and say, Jeff, we're going to record with Earl Scruggs, Doc Watson, Earl Travis. And by then, Bill and I got Earl to ask Maybell Carter. And she said, yes, I was a huge Maybell fan. And well, she lived in the Clinch Mountains, too. So Clinch Mountain Backstep was a good thing to record. How did that happen? I don't know. But uh, then we asked him, oh, we had Jimmy Martin, too. And one of, one of the guys goes, who's Jimmy Martin? Well, you'll find out. <laughs> Jimmy Martin, the man that thought everyone has a right to his opinion. Hi, <laughs> I'm Jimmy Martin, world's best bluegrass singer. Oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Martin. Yeah, that was that was how he'd introduce himself. Brilliant. Well, uh, so it sounds like it all came together pretty quickly. Then, eight weeks after I asked Earl that question, and during the next week, Doc Watson. Eight weeks after that. We started recording, and five days later, we were done. Wow. And it was six days. It actually, we did 36, 36 cuts in six days. And the book that I put out, 50 years making the landmark album, 50 years anniversary, it describes the whole thing. My brother took the photographs. He was a manager and the producer of the band and photographer. He took early, early dirt band shots and all the session shots. Well, I took one and, uh, 
anyway, there's a story with each photograph. And it, I've been so happy because people have emailed me and I've seen it posted. I feel like I'm at the sessions. I feel like I'm there. This really, you know, because you can read the book and see the picture. And now you can hear what is going on there. And you kind of go, if you're playing the record, you are there. You can close your eyes. No, you got to read. It's, uh, it's really a, a neat thing. And that's one of the really cool things about the record itself is hearing the record being made as you listen to the record. There's all the studio chat and you hear the little like beautiful moments like um, Doc meeting Mel Travis, you know, and having a chat. It's all just captured because the mics are still on and people are still taping stuff. And it feels like a, a record and a documentary at the same time. Well, my brother was, he got in the music business so he could get in the film business because he couldn't just walk into the film business. He'd been to film school for a couple years, and uh, music was close. And I was in a band. Bill, would you manage my band? Oh, okay. And so he became the manager, and uh, he later produced five or six Steve Martin movies. He managed Steve Martin, the comedian, also. <clears throat> Steve and I went to high school together and worked in Disneyland as teenagers in the magic shop <laughs> or doing selling magic tricks. It was really fun. And fast forward for 50 years, I produced Steve's album, The Crow. It's a great album. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I produced that. And we won a Grammy. Oh, boy. <clears throat> I'm glad Did you have it. Yeah, did you did you have, I mean, did you have any sense when you were recording the record that it was going to become, like, was it just, oh, we're going into the studio, we're making another record with our heroes because that's what we want to do? Or did you have a sense that it was going to be what it became? The Circle album was important to me when we got the lineup, when I found out who Vassar Clements was, because I didn't know, they didn't have album credits. I asked Earl if he found fiddlers that could handle all the different styles. He goes, I found one man. I said, what's his name? Bastard Clements. Well, can he handle it all, Earl? And he just said, he'll do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he said it more like, he'll do. It was more, it was like so confident that you just, yes, sir. And uh, Earl got the bass player. He was playing at the Grand Ole Opry. He, was a, he played on everybody's records a lot, and Junior was perfect. And uh, with all those people coming through the studio, by day three, it was like, this is really more music, more songs. It went from being a double album to being a triple album. My brother's idea was to have a tape recorder running all the time at three and three quarters inches per second, you know, slower. The master tape was running at 30 inches per second. And the talking tape was running three and three quarters inches per second. <laughs> and uh, that's what pop, well, that's that's what I, I had to change the reels on that. That was okay. Uh, <laughs> it was a very uh, special thing. We wanted to, wanted to get... Doc Watson and Merle Travis meeting for the first time, you know, 
So we set it up to have Myrtle come by when Doc was recording on day three. And uh, Merle came by and starts talking. I had to interrupt. Excuse me. I got to get my brother saying, move the mic in in the control room. You know? And I put the mic in front of Merle and uh, let them talk. And what what are your memories of Doc at those sessions? When we were recording Tennessee Stud, that was one that my brother really wanted to get with Doc because he just has a perfect voice. And I'm sitting with my headphones on, plunking on the banjo. Along about 1825. And about the end of the first verse, I went, I'm playing on an old record. This is 1938. This is 1935. This guy is real. Doc Watson was real. He was really what so many people have emulated. And even me, I play Doc's guitar, I finger pick and, uh, but he really played it. But his Tennessee stud, that really captured a, a moment. That was, that was done, one take, and he did it perfect. I think I think we everybody else performed right too, but it sounds so captivating. I'm sitting there with the headphones on, listening. I'm not. Oh, I'm playing on this record. I better pay attention. You know, it was really wonderful. Way downtown, frail in the banjo, you know, and that was easy as pie. Because Doc was driving it. He had a, a rhythm. He had a spirit. He was like Levon Helm was with the drums. Levon Helm of the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Levon was playing in the group, sitting in with somebody or whatever, everybody was happy because he had a way of playing. Just a. Uh, I, he called me to play the 70th birthday party in Woodstock and I took my wife and she wasn't a band fan. She never didn't really pay attention. And the only place to stand after I did my set and watch him was like three feet away from his drums, you know, like really close. Right. By, the, by the third song, I said, honey, we can move to the back of the room. I think she goes, no, this is fine. This guy's great. You know, cause he was quiet and he was like singing so good. And that's what Doc was like. Doc was, Doc was uh, just really uh, his spirit of what, what we, his spirit of what he, what he was doing came through his notes, his precise and man, and his voice. <laughs> it was it was one of the best feelings in the world. I sat in with Doc a couple dozen times over the years and uh, pick that banjo, John. You know, it was like when I take my solo to see him go, ha ha, you know, at the end. Yeah, that's it. You know, you, uh, the approval, the approval that would give you the uh, feeling that I want to be in this club. Oh, I'm in it. I'm in it. I joined for a brief moment. I, 
rarely got that feeling with the group I was in, but I did sometimes. It was a different thing. But playing with Doc was wonderful. So that was John McEwen from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band talking about Will the Circle Being Broken. I'm going to move on to a couple of people who spent a long time playing with Doc, and anybody who knows a bit about Doc will be familiar with these names. And first up, we've got T. Michael Coleman, who played bass with Doc and toured with Doc for, for you know, 15 years. And just, I mean, what a, what a fascinating insight into Doc and what a, an interesting conversation to have. Here's T. Michael. When I was in college, I was on a work-study program to help pay for my college, and there was a coffee house in the student union. So I would sometimes, you know, go help out with the sound. And one of those times being when Doc and Merle were playing at the coffee house, which was 10 miles from Deep Gap. And uh, the next time they came around, I was not scheduled to work the sound. But on that day, someone came and knocked on my dorm door and said, Doc, uh, Merle said he wanted that hippie guy to come over and run the sound for them again. <laughs> So, and what's interesting is years later, after I had played with Doc and Merle for a while, uh, he hadn't connected those two things. And I reminded him that was me. (laughs) But the way I started playing with them is I was in another band in, uh, in college and after college. And we sometimes opened up for Doc and Merle and we were very progressive we were playing Shady Grove with conga drums and electric guitars. You know, it was sort of like a Mumford and Sons, but back in the 70s, early 70s. Merle would hang out with us a bit because we were close in age. And when that band disbanded, uh, pretty much within a couple of weeks, I was in the hardware store in Boone, North Carolina, and Merle followed me in and he said, uh, you, would you like to come play with me and daddy? And of course, being living in Boone near Deep Gap, they were idolized. And my answer was quicker than his sentence ended. <laughs> so I, I, they wanted me to come down to the house and play a couple of songs and see if it would be a nice fit. So I went and made the mistake uh, any Southern boy should know better than try to knock on the front door because no one in the South uses their front door because they gather things in front of the door. So Rosalie, after a bit of clattering, she opened the door and said, honey, come around the back. So I went around the back and went in, and there sat Doc Watson, and I was pretty speechless at the time. They had set up an amplifier for me. I had my bass. Uh, they decided that we would play T for Texas. We played T for Texas, and Doc said, he'll do. And that's the last time we practiced for 15 years. Wow. That's amazing. And it's a it's a really interesting, like, it, for a figure that is so connected with sort of traditional and roots music, the idea of having a trio with an electric bass was pretty progressive in itself at that point. I think it was a banner of being progressive and convenient because the new traveling with a stand-up bass would be, you know, bothersome. Although we weren't flying, we were traveling in a Winnebago at the time. And I, Merle always had his, his eye and his ear on what was happening. 
and bluegrass festivals were merging with rock and roll festivals. Mm. And the sound systems at that particular time weren't the best in the world. And also with me playing electric bass, they put pickups in their guitars. They weren't relying on microphones or the, or the sound man that was sitting out front that had been there for too many days and had too many other things influencing them. <laughs> and, and it was basically they wanted to be heard and Merle liked the, my interaction with the way they played. And though those were the factors. And I don't know that being, being progressive was the top thing. It was many things in that, in that recipe. And do you remember sort of what the first shows you played with them were? First show I did with him was at the Exit Inn in Nashville, Tennessee. And in the audience was Wailing Jennings and a bunch of other country music stars. And there I was a green kid from North Carolina. And I was pretty much awestruck. And I sat in the middle as a result of not ever rehearsing and Doc knew so many songs that I would look back and forth to the guitar necks so I could follow along. So that, and it made it a little difficult sometimes when they were capoed in two different positions. But that's yeah. why I sat there. And that was it from that day on, you sat in the middle. I sat in the middle, yes. Which is unusual because, because, you know, the star of the show usually sits in the middle. And there were some TV shows where they would rearrange, uh, where we were sitting and, you know, Doc being blind, sometimes he would forget that and he would, he would always lean over to his right to talk to me, yet I wasn't there and I would talk from the other side and it sort of, wait a minute, you're in the wrong place. Yeah, I guess, you you know, just the things that you get used to on some things you take for granted on stage when you can see everybody around you. And I think it's really interesting, the sort of the sight line to be able to see their guitars because anybody who's played in any kind of bluegrass jam, knows that being able to see the guitar player's hands is really useful. Oh, it's very useful because it's impossible to know every song. And Doc and Merle, they were really good about telegraphing where it was going. Uh, the only really difficult thing that uh, that served me well in my music career was Doc being a very, you know, a mountain player first. And sometimes they are, and uh, a lover of Delta blues, he would just sometimes skip a beat. Okay, let's go to the four chord. Uh, yet you hadn't counted the four yet. Maybe it was three and a half, but somehow he would telegraph that move, which uh, I was able to follow in later years. And being from a similar sort of area to them, did, did you sort of, I guess the, the repertoire of material that they played was huge. But I guess if you grew up in that area and knew a lot of that music anyway, it probably gave you a, a fair head start. No. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I was a rock and I was a rock and roll guy. Okay. I was a I was a Beatles fan from the day I heard them, and and rock and roll Led Zeppelin. That's what I listened to. Uh, I did grow up with an Uncle Woodrow that played banjo, and that you know that was in the back of my head and all that kind of music at uh, family reunions was considered, you know, homemade, made up music. And I was in a rock and roll band and I was in a rock and roll band until I went to college and, uh, uh, and discovered folk music, 
while I was in college and discovered who Doc was in a music store. There was a display of albums, and I asked the proprietor, who is that? And there I was 10 miles from where Doc lives. He says, that's Doc Watson. You've never heard of Doc Watson? I said, did he play with Hendrix? <laughs> I don't know who he is. So he gave me an album, and I went home and listened to it, and I was shocked and amazed. And what struck me most was that I understood what they were doing rhythmically, that I could fit into that into that slot and not cover them up or cloud up their music. I knew I could do that, and, you know, it came to fruition later. And that's... So that's some learning curve in terms of the repertoire then, if you came at it from a different world. Uh, no, because uh, rock and roll is a good prerequisite to anything <laughs> because it, uh, you know, it involves a lot of chords, a lot of rhythms. Uh, so uh, the lucky thing for me is when I was in a band in high school, I was the guy who would buy the records and learn the songs. And that imprinted, that gave me an education of how music works theoretically. And that, uh, served me well into playing with Doc and Merle because I understood what goes together. Yeah, that makes sense. If you've got a good ear, then you, that's half the battle. Um, and was there anything sort of when you found yourself playing with them on stage up close? Was there anything about the playing that sort of surprised you or you hadn't? hadn't picked up from the records is there anything different about being sat in between them uh the power of three people playing in sync it was you know i have listened to uh, recordings you know within the last few years and it was like a freight train it was just it was rhythmically it was like no other band i've ever played with it's just everyone did what they needed to do and stay out of stayed out of each other's way but the power of that trio i pitied any band that followed us <laughs> it's an amazing thing when people can make acoustic music um that that feels you know like a complete rhythm section and everything's there and just that the power of you can generate just with picks and strings and hands when you hear the best people do it is astonishing yeah, yeah, it's it's like um, you know every the syncopation and everything mixing together. It's it's not a full blown band playing at a hundred percent. It's playing in your lane, complementing the other players, and therefore you're creating a better auditory picture that comes at you stronger because nothing is uh, psychoacoustically eliminating the other. Yeah, totally. That makes a huge amount of sense. And and you played with Doc like, for the next 10, 15 years. It was 15 that. Did years. you imagine when, when you first arrived, did you imagine it would go on, go on anywhere near as long as that? It didn't, it didn't really, that didn't cross my mind. I was uh, in such a humbled space and that I was sitting there playing with these guys and, you know, from place to place realizing the respect people had for them you know there'd be people coming to the concerts and they would be in such awe of doc they would be nervous just to meet him yeah it's amazing the 
just and just now obviously you know I've I've never seen Doc live never met Doc um and from you know a whole ocean away in a different continent just the the power of that music to spellbind people and the way just carrying out the interviews for this podcast and talking to people about Doc and the the sort of the depth of feeling people have about the music and that comes from the person it, it is. That's exactly right. It comes from the person. There was no pretense. He was who he was. He was Arthur Watson from the mountains of North Carolina. And his blindness almost gave him an advantage over everyone because no matter where he played, he was in his, he could feel as though he were playing for his relatives or for friends. And he would get he would really get involved in the songs, especially the really emotional songs. I can't, you know, tell you how many times he would break down in tears because a lyric would hit him so hard and so meaningfully. And Doc, and his personality came across. And I think people were shocked when they met him. That guy you saw on the stage is the same guy sitting in the dressing room. Yeah, and we've sort of, I think, as pop music has grown as an industry over the past few decades, we've reached a point where people are trying to project so much. Like, you can hear people trying to be emotional when they sing on a huge amount of pop records. And so when you hear a record from somebody who is just being themselves and just singing, whether that's Doc Watson or Hank Williams or whoever, it's just like... It's like somebody's opened the curtains and let the sun in. It's just so direct and so, like, unaffected. It's right. a beautiful yeah, thing. It, it's basically the ability to open a bl- vein and bleed. It's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're. Um, you know, when when he would sing songs, especially when members of his family would die and when Merle died, uh, there's certain just lines in the song, almost, you know it would bring about tears and he was visualizing in his head, you know, his loved one. And that, you know, songs that were written back in the mountains were written to express feelings, to communicate. And he, he kept doing that throughout his career. He was communicating more than entertaining. Yeah. That's a lovely way of putting it. Um, Because anybody, any form of art is essentially an attempt to communicate with people. Yes. Um, it's it's taking a bit of what it's like to be you as a human and trying to connect that with other people and express it in some form without um, trying. Yeah, well, and some people do try, and it's the, the trying can put you off. But <laughs> it's and I was really curious because you obviously played with Doc again in the last couple of years. Um, and was anything anything particularly different at that point? Was it still pretty much the same sort of feeling, or did he sort of changed? as a musician in any way? Well, he, 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 he was still doc and he was still playing well, but he was, um, you could tell he was getting older and that part changed. But the reason he was still out, out there at that age is because he loved playing in front of an audience. And I think you see that just watching things that were recorded fairly late on like the three pickers concert, for example, there's just such a power there still and such a, and you to see the joy other people get from the music was one of the first things, you know, I got into Doc Watson relatively late in my life, but to see 
the effect the music had on other people is almost as appealing as the effect of the music itself. It's part of the, it's just, it's something that um, you can't not notice. Um, absolutely. He, he, through his expression of music and his, his background, he, uh, when he first went to New York during what, uh, Doc and I would laugh about and call the folk scare of the sixties. When, when you were have, when you were talking about trying too hard, you would have people on stage singing in four part unison is what we used to say. <laughs> and so when Doc and Bill Monroe and those guys started going up to New York, all these people would gather and they go, now that there's the real thing. That's what we're trying to hear. You know, Maria Moldar, Bob Dylan, Jose Feliciano, uh, you know, the, whoever was in New York, they would always flock to see Doc or Bill Monroe or any of the real guys. And it's, it's fascinating that, um, that whole period, you know, the, just how much, um, overly produced, overly sort of, I think Brian Sutton described it as homogenized, but just the you know, folk music with all the, all the edges taken off it. that was sort of put out Loun- of the pop la- audience. Yeah. Lounge folk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's when you, that's when the, that's when the, uh, you know, you know, the, the A and R people and the music people, we need to, you know, round out the corners to appeal to more people, but they're, they're taking away the things that, I think would bring in more people. It's, it's, it's amazing how doc would pull in rock and roll people and, uh, folk people. It's, uh, because they identified with, it wasn't so much the genre of music. It was the stories behind the music and how he got there. And, uh, his, uh, folksiness from the stage without even trying. And sometimes when you take the edges off something to try and sell it to a bigger crowd, you've, you actually remove what the thing is completely. It's the edges that make it what it is sometimes. That's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, young people will always come back to the edges. But, you know, that's what happens. Look at how many people have flocked to Billy Strings, how many people have flocked to, uh, to Bluegrass Music and, you know, the Mufford and, Mufford and Sons. They took advantage of that, but not on purpose, I don't think. But, you know, and the Avid Brothers, they have sort of captured a whole audience that, that, that wants genuine music. Yeah. And it seems to be something that will keep, keep on coming around every few years. There's a, a something else that puts it back in the spotlight. And, you know, people just want, want those sounds in their ears and they want something that feels like it's from the heart. You know, there, there are about three, Directional signpost that did that. Will the circle be unbroken? Album by the Dirt Band that brought in a lot, and that about, that's about the time that I started playing with Doc and Merle. Merle had realized these guys appeal to younger people. We need that audience. We need to get up there, and we need to have that long-haired guy sitting on stage with us. <laughs> so they, you know, they, number one, he can identify with them, and plus, he knows how to play. Then the second would be probably uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou that movie, and Alison yeah. Krauss and that that music and everyone mistaking that George Clooney sang that song when it was Dan Tominsky. and then now it's Billy and the Avid Brothers. 
they're the ones that are packing the stadiums. And, and he always makes a point to say, this is where I got it from. This man is where I got it from. Yeah, I love that. He, um, he doesn't just play the songs because he loves them. He plays the songs and tells you where they came from. So you can go and find them too. It's, you know, and it's, there's yep. something very cool about the fact that, you know, Billy has invited you guys to do the Dock at 100 shows with him. And mm-hmm. it sort of brings that whole thing full circle. And it, it, there's something about just keeping that music alive by playing it and loving it and putting it in front of people. So there's something lovely right. about the fact that he's invited you to, to do that show as part of his tour. Yeah, well, Billy and I have been been in touch, you know, for a couple of years through the pandemic. Uh, I did a pod, his podcast with him, and uh, he told me a story. He had never seen Doc before, and he and his mother and his father drove 15, 16 hours to come see us play when we were playing with David Holt near the end, and Billy said he and his family were sitting there in tears the entire time because they had never seen Doc before. And a funny aside, uh, David Holt and I went into a hamburger place to get a hamburger before the show, and Billy said he and his family were sitting there, and they were yeah. he was too nervous to come up and say hello to me. Wow. I mean, yeah, and he would know way would he imagined at that point that at this time he'd be about to share a stage with you all sort of celebrating doc's hundredth birthday it's going it's going to be very special i i think uh i'm touched by his uh his loyalty and uh, i think he's going to be touched when we get up there and play with him the first time yeah and that that night you've got brian sutton and molly tuttle and but there's also it's a whole series of shows you guys are doing as well it's not just the one show with billy you've got a whole set of dates for that as well and it sounds i talked to jack hincherwood recently about the shows and just the the storytelling and celebration element of it as much as the music sounds like it's going to be special it it is and uh you know the trouble is trying to well there are stories you can tell and those you can't (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know you don't want to be repetitive and tell the same story every time you know you want something to be new so uh as with the doc shows, I know Jack Lawrence and I, we're pretty much, you know, off the cuff. What, what memory springs up that we want to share about doc? And you get some, some memories shared from the audience as well, by the sound of it. Yes, we do. I think that comes, um, when Ted Olson does his, uh, little masterclass at the beginning. I think a lot of people share that. And I have this uh, this group called Picket Sun, which is um, during the pandemic, my son said, well, why don't you start, you know, a little group and uh, to uh, further the memory of Doc and Merle. And on that, there are a lot of people that share their experiences with Doc and when they've met him. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite humbling to, you know, be – here in my life and being considered uh, Doc's bass player, his musician. It's uh, something I'm very proud of. Yeah, and it's something that I think means a lot to a lot of people. And to be able to share those memories with you must be incredibly special to a lot of people. I I think it is. I think it is. And I I love that there have been a a lot of families that have named their little girl Sadie after my song. (laughs) 
And you have um, you have a recent record out as well, don't you? Called "Sitting in the Middle," which is also a, a sort of musical tribute. It is. I it started as a result of this Picket Sun group, and I was home. I was <laughs> not going anywhere during the pandemic because it was very scary. And I just sat down and started recording songs that I had played with Doc. And uh, I thought, well, well, I'll just put this on a CD. And, my, of course, my son says, no one buys CDs anymore. What are you doing? <laughs> so I did it anyway. And it was, it was a labor of love, to say the least. It made me realize how great his song selection was. Yeah, that, and that's an interesting thing because, you know, you, people talk about the – guitar playing and people talk about the singing and people talk about banjo playing and people talk about all sorts, but the choice of material. Um, I, I'm doing a similar episode to celebrate 40 years of Tony Rice's church street blues record. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of interviewing a lot of people for that as well. And it's another one where just song selection is a big part of it. And that, you know, doc did all those, the old ballads and the fiddle tunes, but he also did some pop songs and he also did things like Tennessee stud. And he also did some, bits of swing and like whatever grabbed his ear was fair game. And, I think and the Dockabilly, big... the Dockabilly yeah. record, which boy, that was like pulling teeth to get him to do that. <laughs> well, not, not really. He loved that music and he would always play those songs because he played them when he was supporting his family in a little rockabilly band. It, it was just hard to get him to let me call it Dockabilly. He did not want that at all, but finally he acquiesced and let me call it that, which is a perfect name. I mean, it's too good to let go, right? Exactly. You got Dwayne Eddy playing on the records. You got Marty Stewart, uh, Junior, Junior Brown. It was a lot. Of, we did that in two days. Wow! All that, that pretty much, pretty much, pretty much all the records we ever recorded were done in one or two days. But not a lot of overdubbing. You know, we would just count to four and play. So no rehearsals uh, for the gigs, no rehearsals for recording, <laughs> turn up, count in, off you go. No, it's, you know, it's about listening. You know, and I always, when I was, the records that I produced, I always hired the people who knew Doc and he would invite them on stage to play like Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush and Stuart Duncan, you know, and Alan O'Brien. They knew Doc, so they knew what to do and they knew to listen. And that, that you know, that's ninety percent of playing music is to listen. And the other that's, half, as Yogi Berra would say, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sort of loops us back round to so where we started this bit, and just the idea that um, Doc and Mill turned up, and you weren't there, sound engineering that day, and they you go and get that guy; he knows what he's doing. He was, you know, he knows how to how to Pretty listen. Much. I guess, and I guess, I guess that was the catalyst of it that. Uh, that even though it was probably embedded in the back of Merle's brain that, uh, you know, this guy knows what to listen for, even though he didn't make the connection between musician and old hippie in the back or young That's hippie so in the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's all really, really cool stuff. Um, have you, are there any particular sort of, you know, I mean, out of all those years, it'd be tricky, but if there are any particular memories or any particular thoughts you've got that you'd like to share any aspects of, Doc, that you'd, you know, you'd like people to think more about? Uh, he was really uncomfortable with uh, people idolizing him. He, uh, he didn't know how to respond. You know, for instance, 
uh, or, and he treated no one differently. He thought he himself was no better than anyone else, and no one else was better than he. Uh, I remember at the bottom line in New York one time, John Denver came to the door, and it knocked on the dressing room, and I came out and it says, Michael, can I meet Doc? And I said, I'll go check. So I'll go inside and say, Doc, uh, John Denver's out here, and he wants to say hello. And he says, well, tell him just to wait. I'm going to finish my hamburger. <laughs> Or, you know, we were, we'd be playing somewhere at a concert in Los Angeles, and you look on the side of the stage, and there would be Maria Moldar and Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt just, you know, uh, coming to play homage, pay homage to Doc. Yet not was, brave enough to come say hello. It's funny, isn't it? I, one of the interviews that I did for this, and I think it was probably with Jack um, Hinchelwood, saying that Doc's manager had phoned him to tell him he won a Grammy for the first time. And he sort of said, yeah, can you call back later? I'm in the middle of watching Love Boat. That's, that's true. <laughs> that, I mean, he also, he was nominated, and they wanted to give him a, a Kennedy Center honor. And he, uh, he said, I don't need that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, you remember the movie Cold Mountain? Yeah. With, okay. The director called me. He wanted to open the movie with Doc Watson sitting in the cabin playing banjo, and he was going to push out into the mountains of North Carolina, and Doc says, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it just kind of, you know, it wasn't, he just, he just didn't need it. He would rather sit home and, uh, you know, eat Rosalie's cooking. And if you're that grounded in what matters to you and what doesn't, and you put that into your music, it's sort of no wonder that people respond to it. You know, he always said uh, his music was what he did for a living. It was not who he was. Because when he was home, he was he was still Doc, but he wasn't that musician Doc. You know, because you have to have a certain mindset to be able to go out there and, and play, uh, not being affected, though. But, but you know, he was more he was more awful than he was Doc Watson. At home, because Rosalie's there going, Arthur, go do this, Arthur, go do that. And maybe that's maybe that is a useful thing to be able to have a slightly public version of your persona that you know, when he's on stage, he's dark, and when he's at home, he isn't. Must be a help. No, he's, uh, I'm, I'm sure it helped keep him grounded. Uh, and uh, he, he was a pretty grounded individual. And there was, uh, there's, there was nothing he would not try or do. For instance, in the Winnebago one time, one of the guys, they were driving and they ran into a walkway of a hotel and knocked a huge hole in the Winnebago. So Doc said, Michael, I think I can fix that. Why don't you pull the Winnebago up here to the second floor landing? I'll climb over the railing on top of the Winnebago. He did that. He patched it with duct tape and then climbed back over. And that patch was on there the day we sold it five years later. What a great chat. Um, I I worked really hard at cutting that one down, and the idea was I was going to include some of that and then release the full thing as a separate episode, but I just couldn't bring myself to remove a single bit of it. It was um, a fascinating chat, and, I, and thanks so much to T. Michael for taking the time to do that. Um, and so through T. Michael, I got in touch with my next guest on this episode, Jack Lawrence, a guitarist who played and toured with Doc for, for 20 years. Um, and again, just generous, warm, insightful um, conversation. And again, I didn't 
take a bit of this out. I left all of this in here, and these are going to be long episodes, and I sort of originally thought I might need to apologise for that, but I just think this is this is lovely stuff if you're interested in Doc and his world and his influence and the effect he had on people. I think um, these are great conversations. So here is Jack Lawrence. Back in the late 70s, mid-70s, uh, I met Merle Watson through... Um, through my friend Joe Smothers, who I was playing, doing it. Well, we had a rock and roll band. We also did a folk music duo. And Joe and I did some opening acts for Doc and Merle. And Merle and I became friends uh, in the in the fall of um, in the fall of 1983. Um, I got a phone call from Merle on a Friday afternoon. And he asked me, uh, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to mow my grass tomorrow. Uh, it's it's Saturday and, you know, I don't have anything else going on. And he said, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you go to Lake Charles, Illinois, and play a show with Dad? Hmm. Uh, he just didn't didn't really want to go, I don't think. You know, I'm, I, for whatever reason. And so I did. Uh, and uh, Merle kept calling me to fill in uh, for him. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. The first, the first show I figured, okay, we'll do a little bit of rehearsal. But that never happened. I mean, I played with Doc for 27 years, and I can count on two fingers how, you know, how many times we rehearsed, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, it, it must've worked because, uh, you know, I ended up being there for 27 years and the first year I played with doc, I played about 50% of the shows through 1984 and 1985, I played probably 95% or even better because Merle was in the process of building docs house and so he was clearing the property and he was um you know working with the contractors and that sort of thing so uh he didn't go out very much in in 85 and of course in uh october of of 85 uh he was killed in the accident and so uh something evidently worked uh because I stuck around for a long time. And the first four years or so of that, uh, you know, I was, uh, T. Michael Coleman was part of the band. Hmm. So, um, you know, Michael and I became close during those four years and it kept in touch and done the project here and there. Yeah, and you'll get to play together again at the Docker 100 shows. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be great fun. We've only done one show, so it's, we're still, you know, kind of figuring out how, how to approach it. And that's been a, you know, a, a work in progress for the last couple of months. So we're getting started up again um, at the Birchmere in Alexandria, where Doc and well, and Michael as well, we all played for years. Uh, you know, uh, two or three times a year for 
you know, 25 years or something. Uh, so that's going to be, that's going to be fun. Uh, I haven't played at the Birchmere in a couple of years. Um, Michael and I did another doc tribute show that was supposed to include Wayne Henderson, who canceled at the last minute, but we got our friend Dudley Connell from the seldom scene to come in and cover for, for Wayne. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, and that was a hoot playing with Dudley. We had, we had a good time with that, but I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to taking this show back to the Birchmere. Yeah, it'd be really cool. And so presumably when you started playing with Doc, you were really familiar with a lot of his music prior to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in fact, that first show, there was no rehearsal. So he asked me, um, just, you know, 10 minutes before we were going on stage, well, do you know this song? Yeah, I know that one. How about this one? Yeah. And he named three songs maybe. And, um, he said, well, okay, we'll do those three first and then go from there. (laughs) And, um, yeah, it, 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 the, the show went well. <laughs> and I was familiar with Doc because, uh, you know, from the time I was around 13 or 14, maybe in the, in the mid 60s. Um, I had some of his records, you know, I had grown up listening and watching Flat and Scruggs on TV. And my dad was a sound tech at a music hall, so I got to see Flat and Scruggs live and Bill Monroe live and Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton and Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, everybody came through this music hall where uh, where I lived. And so, uh, you know, and my dad made sure to introduce me to, to all these people as they came through. And, uh, yeah, when I was, uh, you know, 13, maybe 14, I discovered Doc, and I'd been trying to play like Earl Scruggs up to that point, uh, fingerstyle. Mm. And, um, you know, I got actually got Doc's first solo record and uh, was knocked over by it and um, started working on the, the flat pick stuff. And, you know, then I discovered. Clarence White and I did, you know, through, through Doc. And then, uh, you know, Glenn Campbell was another huge influence for me. Um, not to mention, a, you know, a couple other guitar players in the, in the area here. I mean, uh, well, Tony, uh, I met Tony Rice when I, we met each other when we were, he was 17 and I was about to turn 15. Uh, they moved back to North Carolina. I guess that would have been 1968 or so. Uh, and Tony was not as, as much an influence for me as he just was, uh, he was just, uh, another one of the handful of flat pickers, uh, in this area. There were a couple of others and we all competed against each other and at fiddlers conventions and guitar contests and stuff, uh, from 68 until, well, really, you know, Tony left in 1970 to do the Bluegrass Alliance thing. And then I left, uh, I left home 
about a year later and joined the Bluegrass Alliance after he left. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, but it was, it was Doc that all that got me started on the flat pick thing. And, you know, the, the on stage record, when that came out, um, when that came out, that was like my Bible for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I listened to that over and over and over. So like back at that first gig, once those three songs are gone and you've kind of, you know, you've gone through the three that you've arranged to play, it's just a case of Doc shouts out a song and then you're off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, it, it you know, and it doesn't, it never mattered whether, I, you know, I knew the song or not. <laughs> he would just, he would, and that continued until, you know, and, uh, until the very end, <laughs> You know, Doc would just turn over, turn around to me and say, you know, this is in G. <laughs> and, you know, I would say, yeah, I know G. And then he would start. <laughs> and, uh, and that, like I said, that continued until the, almost through the very last gig. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it took, it took a couple of months uh, for me to, kind of settle into it you know i was uh you know i was concentrating more on playing is different differently than doc uh more than i was actually playing the song and it took me and doc never never said anything one way or the other you know um you know, he always let me play what I wanted to play when I wanted to play it. He encouraged that. Um, but, you know, I listened to a couple of early shows and realized I was a little outside the pocket. So I reined myself in. And as the years, as the years went on, um, and it didn't take, it, actually, it didn't take years, but it, you know, within a, a, a few months, you know, uh, we learned how to play with each other. Um, and, you know, it's it's not always easy when you got two two guitars and both play lead. And and Doc would never hear him doing it, it doing it any other way. You know, so it it just but it just, it took. It's amazing how little time it took for us to lock in together. I mean, especially with Coleman there, who was rock solid. Um, so, um, you know, I reined myself in a little bit and as the years progressed, Doc started getting more adventurous because I, you know, I kind of played by the seat of my pants, uh, you know, from the put your fingers anywhere school of music, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, luckily it works most of the time, <laughs> but I noticed Doc getting a little more adventurous in his solos. And um, after we'd been doing it a number of years, we did a show with uh, with Newgrass Revival, and Bela Fleck came to me, and um, and gave me what I thought was a real compliment. You know, I mean, he he said Doc plays better with you than anybody he's ever played with. <laughs> I mean, that you know, so I think uh, you know I took that as a real compliment. And, you know, like I said, we rubbed off on each other. 
you know, in fact, as the years went on, you know, you know, our, our arrangements, our arrangements just happened organically because Doc would call something we'd never played together, you know, what, when we're on stage in front of, you know, thousands of people sometimes. And so, um, you know, after playing the song a few times, if it got into the rotation, after playing it a few times, I'd figure out like a little lick that I did in certain places, uh, a little signature lick that I thought, you know, fit the song. And on occasion, on occasion, we'd be playing the song and I'd realize, you know, Doc's playing my part. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to figure out something else to do, which was, you know, again, you know, I take that as a real compliment. Um, you know, Doc was always very gracious with uh, anybody who played with him, you know, to let them have their moment in the sun. Um, you know, uh, we'd have people come up and, and sit in with us over the course of the years. You know, Sam Bush, uh, uh, David Greer, uh, you know, just Jerry Douglas, Mike Aldridge. I mean, it just everybody wanted to play with Doc for one thing. And we loved that. And so we'd have people sit in all the time, uh, you know, and after I'd been, you know, after I'd been there just a couple of months, he asked me to start singing a, a few songs on the shows as well. So, you know, uh, I remember going into the recording studio uh, and we had to tell Doc, hey, you're giving all the, you know, you need to take your solos. You're giving them all away. I mean, this is a Doc Watson record. You know, you're giving all the solos away. You know, you need to, <laughs> you need to play, play your solos. So, he, you know, he, but he just loved, especially the younger, you know, people of my generation, which now we're the elders, <laughs> kind of, but. But back when I started with him, uh, which is approaching 40 years ago, um, you know, it, he always hung out with younger musicians, you know, for the most part. And I think that's what kept him vital, you know, well into his 70s and well in, in, into his 80s. And that's sort of point you were talking about, you know, giving away his solos and being sort of very generous as a as a musician and just I was watching the other day one of the the homespun doc videos which is the one that was filmed at Melfast um and you know another artist you would buy their video and it's them showing you their stuff but there's bits just going right let's go and look at what Jack's doing let's go and you know deconstruct that break that Jack just played and it's you know it's it's just a a sort of generosity of we're all making this music together and so it's all interesting, which just is it's right. not always the case. Yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't know I was even going to be part of that thing until uh, late the night before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning at a festival where, you know, of course, I, you know, up late the night before. And so I... I I look pretty ragged, but but we played well. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great um, it's a great video, and it's you know it's it, things like that. Uh, they're they're very they're, they give you real insight into. I think the fact that we've got all these videos of 
players over the decades that Happy and Homespun and other companies have put out. It's just a wonderful document of some of those things, particularly when it's not in a studio, when it is at a festival setting and there's, you know, a lot of chats as well. Right, yeah, there, there are a number of uh, videos out there, um, starting with DHS, which nobody uses anymore, um, that I was a part of, uh, you know, with Doc. And uh, there, I mean, one in particular um, was uh, a set from Merlefest. I think it was '92. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure, but it was. Uh, it was Doc, uh, Tony Rice, Dan Crary, and Steve Kaufman. And it's just a guitar set, you know, and. Uh, you know, and that and that was also done at Merlefest. I think the year after the homespun thing, but I'm not positive. Yeah, it's great to have all that documented. And um, just sort of thinking about you, you touring with Doc, because obviously, you know, you're talking about Doc never told you what to play, and he very much let you play in your own style, and you were very conscious of that. Because so touring with Doc, there's two sides to that. One is to play in the places that Merle had played with him. And Merle had his own very distinctive style as well. He wasn't just sitting there back in Dock Up. Um, but also just the amount of time you would be spending with Doc on the road as well. It's, you know, it's a, there's a musical relationship and a personal relationship there. Oh, of, of course. Um, you know, uh, I spent more time on the road with Doc than I did with my growing family for years um and you know sometimes it was hard when coleman when coleman was still with us that first four years we could kind of split the responsibilities um you know i mean we would we would fly and rent cars and you know, to, to, to get to the, the gigs. And so, you know, one of us would get docked through security at the airport and while the other, or pick up the bags while the other guy goes to get the rental car and, and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, after Coleman left the band in, I believe it was October of 87, uh, it was just docking me on the road. So, uh, that it was hard work, you know, I mean, the, the two hours that we spent playing the show was the best part of the day, <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, also after Coleman left, I mean, I had to do all the driving, um, cause doc drives too fast and, you know, <laughs> or that's always our joke. Uh, and you know, and as time as time progressed, um, you know, Doc brought me in as a as a full partner. And even before that happened, I was I was also booking booking the flights, booking the uh, rental cars and the hotels, and um, you know, doing all the road manager stuff too. Um, so eventually doc made me a, it brought me as a full partner and, uh, 
you know, compensated me for a lot of that extra work. Um, and it's a, you know, any kind of touring situation where it's just a couple of you, it's a lot of time to spend with another person and particularly over a span of, you know, quarter of a century, it's, you know, and the touring in those situations, 20 years older than you were when you started doing it, you, you know, the, that kind of work affects you in different ways at different stages in your life. And, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable relationship. Uh, yeah, you know, there were very few times we had a crossword over that span. Uh, but they're, you know, just like a marriage, you know, there are going to be times when you butt heads and, you know, say stuff that you might not really mean or some stuff that you really do mean. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it was a lot, but that, that happened very, very seldom. You know, we, uh, we were pretty tight. We were pretty tight friends and, uh, you know, uh, and that's, I, I, I think, uh, you know, Merle's trust in me really, um, really kind of, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, Merle's trust in me rubbed off on Doc. I mean, Doc trusted me because, he's, you know, Merle did, and he trusted Merle. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it just just prior to just prior to Merle's death, maybe five weeks or so, uh, they were recording uh, Doc's only bluegrass record, um, uh, riding the midnight train, uh, the only bluegrass record he ever really did, and uh, he called he, he called me one day and said uh, that while they were recording it. And uh, asked me to to fly to Nashville and meet Doc and T. Michael and drive to uh, a couple of gigs that were there after the recording session. And Merle called me that night. Uh, I just moved right into his hotel room <laughs> after I got there. And uh, about one o'clock in the morning or something like that, uh, you know, the phone rings and it's, it's Merle. And uh, we talked for about an hour or so. And, you know, he never really gave me any reasons, but, you know, he told me during that conversation that uh, he was, uh, he was going to step back from touring and, you know, he was just kind of tired of the road and, you know, wanted to do something else. I mean, he was as happiest when he was, you know, uh, organizing a construction crew or riding his tractor or clearing land. I mean, that's what he loved doing that. But anyway, he said, I'm not going to be doing this very much longer. And I just want to know, you know, you and dad get along well and you play well together. Uh, you know, um, 
you know, I just, uh, I'm going to be stepping back and, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that you're in and, you know, you'll take care of dad and, and everything. And I said, well, of course, of course I will. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing it for, you know, almost two years at that point. And I said, of course I will. And, uh, that was the last time I ever spoke with, with Merle. Um, you know, I got a call about, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe a month later from T. Michael, uh, you know, telling me what had, what had happened. You know, and, and Merle was, you know, had a real sense of humor about, uh, about his place in the, in the group those last couple of years, you know, I'd been out there, especially the last year, 85, uh, 85, 84 through 85, really. Um, I'd been out there most of the time. And so on the shows, uh, on the shows that Merle decided he was going to play, you know, people would uh, come up and, and tell him they were, they were kind of surprised to see him because he, he hadn't been out for a while. And, and he'd just tell him, well, I'm filling in for Jack. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was, you know, Merle, when he died, I think was the, the maybe the happiest I'd seen him in, in a while. Um, and, you know, I think maybe being off the road was was good for him. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't suit everybody, and it's as you say, there's a lot of responsibilities go with it. And yeah, well, he, you know, he'd been on the at this point, he'd been on the road at the point of his death. He'd been on the road with his father for twenty years, mm. basically, and uh, you know, that's believe me, that's a long time. <laughs> That's a long time to stay with one act because up until the, I mean, I was with a dozen acts before I started playing with, with, uh, with Doc. And, you know, that just, you know, the whole Doc thing just really clicked. I mean, uh, I think the best either one of us ever played was when we played together. And it's an interesting span of time to spend like in one musical situation in, in just in terms of the arc of that as well, you know, I'd be really interested to know if over the course of that 25 years, so that, like how, how doc was perceived. Cause we look back on doc now as this figure on the sort of Mount Rushmore of American acoustic music. Um, and there's, you know, po- post will the circle be unbroken doc was put in a whole new light by that, but there must've been, um, a journey between those points where sometimes he was much more in the spotlight and you know the the acoustic music in general comes and goes in popularity particularly through the 80s and 90s it's right well you know actually you know the circle the circle record saved doc's career i mean in 1971 uh between the circle record and the influx and the popularity of bluegrass festivals you know uh, which you know in the early 70s was really starting to take off here you know um 
but the circle record was that that saved Doc and Merle's career because uh, they were kind of I think they were kind of struggling a little before that. Uh, so that was a big shot in the arm for them, and then coupled that, like I said, with the the you know bluegrass festivals becoming hot. And, you know, when I f- first started playing with Doc, we were playing dinky little clubs, you know, and, uh, you know, what would happen, we, we'd get an anchor gig, you know, a nice theater gig or something, then book clubs and stuff around that gig. And we did that for several years. And uh, then around 1990, Doc decided he was going to retire uh, and so we didn't do anything for about, well, we played out the gigs we had and then we didn't do anything for about two months or three months. I'd, I'd gotten involved with, a, would gotten involved with a guitar shop and doing some guitar repair and staying at home for the first time in years. Hmm. And, um, that lasted for about three months. <laughs> And Doc called me and uh, and said, "Well, do you you know? I, I really want to go out and and play play some more, you know, play again." And and I just said, I just told him, said, "You know, look, I I, I feel good being home for the first time in years. I've gotten involved with uh, this guitar shop thing that's uh, just getting off the ground. You know, I'm not sure I want to." not sure I want to go out, you know? And so he said, well, I understand. And we hung up and about half an hour, 40 minutes later, he called me again <laughs> and said, you know, I can't do this without you. You know, uh, you know, I, I really feel like I need to go out and here's what, here's, here's my proposition. I'm going to take fewer. I'm going to double the, price or double the fee that we're normally getting and uh and only go out maybe maybe two weekends a month just a couple of days at a time and uh, so eventually you know those fees did get doubled and tripled in some cases he said uh, we'll we'll take uh we'll just take the expenses off the top and split whatever's left and, you know, I mean, that gave, and I, that was an offer I couldn't turn down. I mean, that was, <laughs> you know, it, it was very generous for one thing, but, um, you know, I, I would have been crazy to, to turn that offer down. And uh, given the relaxed schedule, you know, I still could put in the time at the, at the guitar shop. Uh, which, you know, I, and I did that for about five years as, uh, you know, and played with Doc at the same time until I got out of the guitar shop business. <laughs> and did you, does the, was there a point, you know, around 2000 when Oh Brother just gave all forms of acoustic sort of bluegrass-related music a shot in the arm? Was there a sudden sort of resurgence and interest for Doc's music after that, because it just it's so easy for somebody like me who's got into bluegrass since then just to see all these things as always having been in the spotlight. But I know that things changed. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know how much, uh, Oh brother. I, I know it was a big boost for bluegrass and string band music really, because, you know, quite honestly, there was not a whole lot of bluegrass in, uh, Oh brother, where are they all? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, real bluegrass music. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, uh, but you know, I gave acoustic music in general, a big shot in the arm, just like, Bonnie and Clyde did in the sixties and deliverance did in the seventies. Um, you know, all of those movies, uh, gave a a little bit of boost to it, you know, to, to the music, um, you know, acoustic and roots music, you know, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Doc never considered himself bluegrass, and he did not really like it much when people pigeonholed him as a bluegrass guy. Uh, he told me, he said, I've never been in a bluegrass band. I've only done one bluegrass record. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a bluegrass artist, you know. But he didn't take into consideration the, the impact his guitar playing had for guitar players in bluegrass bands. And, um, you know, plus, you know, the, the, the lines have been blurred about what is and isn't bluegrass for years. Yeah. <laughs> but Doc was always, you know, adamant that, you know, I can play bluegrass and I play, and, and there's some of the stuff that I do that's, you know, uh, flavored like that and certainly has those influences but i'm not a bluegrass artist and he finally came up with a term that just about everybody could understand and basically basically just would tell people so well i play traditional plus and they'd ask well what's that he said well it's traditional music plus whatever the hell i want to play (laughs) yeah and that's it's it's very true that um Doc gets a lot. You have conversations about bluegrass guitarists, and Doc comes up as one of the, you know, the biggest influences on people. But you know, bluegrass is a, a specific format of a band with certain instruments and certain stylistic things, and, and so many things and, that get lumped in around that don't really fit that mold. Right. Yeah. And that's that's what Doc, that's how Doc felt about it. You know. So I, you know, we don't we don't have a mandolin and a banjo and a fiddle. You know, we can't play bluegrass. You know. I mean, he had his idea of what bluegrass is, and he wasn't it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it's, you know, and there's something not, there's something good about that. I think that whole idea of traditional plus and not fitting into predefined versions of what music has to be, just playing music that you like in the way that you like it, and that's, that's Doc Watson, you know. That Doc yeah. Watson was sort of a genre to himself in many ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people at first, um, you know, Doc was a big fan of, of, uh, the Moody Blues. Uh, we did Nights in White Satin Mm. and, uh, you know, just, just recently I read a a review you know, Doc and I never recorded it together. We we played it all the time. He would go on and on about, you know, uh, the Moody Blues and how he loved that song. And he had worn out an eight-track tape of that song, <laughs> of, uh, of that album. 
And uh, so finally it came out on compact disc and I bought it for him as a Christmas present or something. And uh, the next time we went out on tour, he pulled out Nights in White Satin. And just recently, I don't know if this, if it was on a, it was a review in Bluegrass Unlimited, I think, that mentioned maybe it's, it's on a compilation or a, a video or something, uh, a doc's version of that. Uh, well, it wasn't a video. I think it was the record he did with the Frosty Morn guys at Merle Fest. They recorded it then. And somebody, somebody, and recently there was a review of that song, and they wondered who talked Doc into into playing that. They didn't like it at all, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I came very close to to writing a letter to the editor and saying nobody twisted his arm to play that song. He loved that song. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, you didn't tell Doc what to do very often. <laughs> I mean, especially musically. You never told him what to do. And he afforded me the same thing. He never told me what to play or when to play. So, you know, just go yeah. with it. Oh, that's really cool. You know, there's just the idea that anybody would twist Doc's art. Anybody who is that certain about their own musical style and that comfortable with who they are and that sure of their own musical intent the idea that you could convince them to do anything they didn't want to do seems almost laughable yeah <laughs> yeah i i've never you know i mean i had a, a little bit of a problem when i was young with band leaders that wanted me to play like a certain, well, for one, Lonnie Pierce with the Bluegrass Alliance, you know, they'd already had Dan Crary and they'd had uh, um, Tony. And, you know, I was the, the next up. And Lonnie wanted to go back to the pre-Tony sound, you know. He wanted me to play like Dan Crary. And I just said, you know, I can't. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't. Nobody can play just like somebody else. You know, I, I, you know, I can't do that. He said, well, I want you to learn band solos. And I said, Lonnie, if you had told me that before you hired me, uh, you know, when you offered me the job, I would have turned it down. You know, I would have turned it down. And so... You know, we kind of butted heads over that. And I was only 18 years old <laughs> at the time. And even then, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, was I influenced by Dan? Of course I was. You know, I, his bluegrass guitar record was was terrific. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I would say that I was more influenced by Dan than Tony. Uh, oh, for sure, for sure, m much more. But I didn't want to be Dan. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I, and so I went through a succession of bands, you know, before I got the thing with Doc, and it was just so refreshing, 
at that, you know, at that point that, Hey, here's a guy that's going to let me be me mm. and decide, you know, let me decide what I want to play when I want to play it. And that's Jack Lawrence. Um, I, that was such a cool conversation to get to have. I, I mean, I enjoyed that immensely. Um, so we've heard from some people who worked with Doc. We've heard from some people who played and toured with Doc. Um, we're going to finish this first episode with a couple of people who didn't work with Doc, but have had a have had and are having a big role on taking Doc's legacy forward into the next hundred years. Um, and first up, we're going to hear from Lindsay Craven, who is artist relations manager at Melfest, and she's going to just chat about how. Doc's vision and Doc's sense of traditional plus music is being carried on through the work Melfest are doing now. So here's Lindsay Craven of Melfest. So I actually started with Melfest as a college intern my junior year of college at Appalachian State University. Um, I actually came on initially through um, the advertising and marketing department, I believe. I was working with Art Minius um, and spent the spring semester doing that with him. And um, ended up during the festival, somehow or other, I ended up in the artist relations uh, department during the festival, which deals with getting the artists where they need to be, um, taking care of them while they're on site, dealing with hotels and all this, all the stuff that involves artists during the weekend. Um, and then come next, the following spring, my senior year, they actually reached back out to me and asked if I'd like to come back with the artist relations team. Um, and so, you know, why would I not? <laughs> That's an awesome opportunity as a college student. So I returned and worked with John Adair his first year as the artist relations manager, um, and learned a lot that year, had a, a much different experience. They had moved things around. So you were actually the first year of the festival. I was actually working like from a good distance away from the festival grounds. So it was kind of a different experience, but the next year they had a, a production trailer backstage and so we were kind of in the heart of everything that was happening at the main stage um so it was a lot different um but from then on they just kept inviting me back to either work the festival weekend as a volunteer or i worked as um a part-time employee sometimes when they needed some help during the year because i was always you know half hour to an hour away from the campus so i had various degrees across multiple artist relations managers. And then when Steve Johnson decided he was going to take a different path in 2018, um, he encouraged me to apply. So I did. And thankfully they felt I would do a good job in the role. And it's an exciting year to be doing that job because there's so much going on, like, you know, all over the place celebrating Doc's hundredth birthday. And presumably you've got some special things lined up for the festival this year. We do. We have a Doc's 100th birthday jam that's going to happen on Saturday on the main stage. Um, it's hosted by the Kruger Brothers, and there will have lots of special guests there. Um, we're still working on putting that lineup together, and I'm sure I'm even going to be surprised on who pops up on stage, um, as I usually am with these jams. Um, but they're always pleasant surprises, so I can't wait to see how that comes together. Um, the Krugers, you know, they have an intense love and respect for Doc. So we know that they're going to do that jam justice and we're excited to see it come together. And it's been, it's sort of been cool to see the, that respect and that excitement from all over the place as we sort of approach, you know, Doc's hundredth birthday. This will, it will be Doc's hundredth birthday when this comes out. Um, and just the, uh, 
from that point on through to Melfast and and probably beyond, it feels like a sort of a long celebration of Doc and not just Doc's music, but the way people talk about Doc as a human and as an inspiration, just an all round, you know, inspirational figure beyond just the music is is so um, it's lovely to see. Yes, every time I turn on social media, I feel like I see a new tribute show or album or something honoring Doc this year. And that's it's very exciting to see. It's great, you know, for us to get to see Doc get the attention and honor that he deserves. Not that he doesn't get that any other year, but this year especially. Um, and, you know, Doc was, I think Doc's a lot like Dolly um, in the culture of just, he was just a good person with a good mentality towards music and towards open-mindedness. And um, I think people see that and it's just refreshing these days to see. So he's kind of an icon that will live on. Yeah. That's a really interesting comparison because they are sort of both figures that you know very different in many, many ways, but at the same time sort of bridge gaps and pull people together from all over the place. And, you know, with a sort of effortless, seemingly effortless, just, you know, strength of character and charm. Exactly. And I think they're, you know, their music just speaks across genres and, you know, introduced a lot of people to different genres of music that they never would have listened to otherwise, um, but inspired generations. And that's, that's one of the cool things about Melfest's sort of ongoing commitment to Doc's traditional plus sort of mindset of, you know, you look at the lineup and it's not a bluegrass festival, uh, right. although there's plenty of bluegrass there, but it's, that must be um, a really cool sort of ongoing challenge to add to that and build to that. And, you know, presumably when Doc was around, he had a, a bit of a say in what was going on. But to take that and then just keep growing it must be a cool challenge to have. Yeah, we always, I mean, Doc's always in mind when we build these lineups. You know, we kind of put a, together a programming um, formula that was guided by him initially. And, you know, the traditional plus is always in our minds of, Yes, we love bluegrass, and yes, a lot of people think we're a bluegrass festival, but we do so much more. Um, and, you know, we always try to make sure we have a very good balance throughout the entire weekend and even each day of different types of music for everybody to enjoy. It's, I think doing these interviews for the podcast, the thing that most people have, I think the most common theme is how much people love the breadth of repertoire Doc had. That You know, you say the word bluegrass, he wasn't even really a bluegrass musician. <laughs> um, but but in just the range of stuff he was able to pull in and turn into his own is what inspired people as much as any individual instrumental skill or piece of music. Yes. And we have, you know, jams that are not new to this year, but will continue this year. Um, we have like a Dockabilly jam that Mitch Greenhill hosts. Um, so, you know, that's that's got a whole different side of Doc. We have the gospel songs of Doc Watson on Sunday on our Creekside stage. Um that Jeff Little hosts, um, and that Jack Lawrence does a songs of Doc Watson um, on one of our traditional stages. So there's there's all different styles of Doc across the festival, and the people who played with him and knew him the best are honoring that memory and that music. And presumably, there's a lot of people who come to Millfest every year and have been coming for a long time. And this, this year will be a really meaningful year for them. Yes. I'm sure we have some um, audience members who've been with us for all 35 years this year. Um, 
and we are so grateful for those people who stuck it out with us for this long and especially through the difficulties of COVID. Um, so, and then we've got some that have been bringing their families since their children were little and now they're bringing grandchildren. So it's pretty cool to look out in our audience and see the diversity that's out there. Um, we, we definitely have a wide range of audience members. And then we've got some, you know, we've got the college Appalachian state, just 30 minutes up the road. So, you know, when we have certain performers like the Avett brothers, and I think Marin Morris will probably reflect that as well. They just draws them down and that's usually their first experience at Marl Fest. Um, and they hopefully fall in love with it and they start coming every year as well. And hopefully this sort of spotlight on doc for the next few months, particularly with, you know, people who have the, size of audience of Billy Strings and that the amount of doc chat that's going to be around for two or three months now will bring some new people in and a new generation and that will keep it all going. I 100% think so. I mean, Billy, though we haven't been able to get him back on the lineup since 2020, we hope to at some point. Um, but I think he's doing amazing things for introducing people to new genres and to musicians that they need to know. You know, people need to know who Doc is. And I think Billy is really doing a service there and yeah. honoring all of these artists that inspired him and that have taught him. I think that's one of the coolest things. He's, you know, he's not just doing the material. He's telling people where it came from. And it, then that just carries on that tradition and it, it keeps things moving, which is whether you talk about bluegrass or folk or any sort of traditional music, that's that's how it keeps going. There's new people pick it up and take it somewhere a bit further down the line and hand it on to somebody else. Absolutely. And I think he's 100% doing that. Uh, tip my hat to him for sure for that. There's not a lot out of, not a lot of that out there, but he's definitely one of them carrying the torch. And I think he's inspiring others to do the same. I think that's it. So each generation has a figure who people just relate to and see what they're doing and love it. And doc very much seems to have been that for, for that generation that he sort of grew up inspiring and, people who came to that music in the sixties and the seventies. And it's, you know, there'll, there'll always be somebody. And it was, it was definitely doc at his time. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I think doc has inspired probably millions, honestly, <laughs> you know, across the globe. I mean, he, he traveled outside of the U S plenty of times. So I know that there's, there's people who can, look back and say, Doc definitely inspired me in my music or in my life across the world. Cool. That was Lindsay Craven, Artist Relations Manager at Melfest. Um, just really interesting getting an insight into how they're carrying Doc's work and Doc's vision and Doc's inspiration on. It's not just preserving a thing, sticking it in a glass case, and it's keeping it alive and keeping it living and keeping it breathing. And my final guest in this episode um, is going to talk a bit about that as well. This is Ted Olson, and Ted's a professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University. Um, he also co-produced the Doc at 100 shows that are going on at the moment and will continue to go on. But he also wrote um, the liner notes, which makes them sound like something less than they are, but he wrote the book, basically, that accompanies the Doc box set that came out last year, A Life's Work. Um, and so, yeah, to take us out, we're going to hear from Ted Olson about writing the liner notes for that box set. Um here comes Ted. Living in Western North Carolina for many years, uh, Doc was often thought of, I think nationally, uh, perhaps beyond, as primarily a North Carolina artist. 
um, from the Western North Carolina mountains in Watauga County, uh, North Carolina. But as I learned living in Johnson City, Tennessee, he in fact got much of his musical launch from participating in a band based in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is, you know, I want to estimate 60 miles or so from where he lived. And so I, I started to piece together in my own mind as an educator and as a teacher of American roots music and all the many uh, subgenres of American music that we taught here, I, I started to piece together a narrative of Doc because, frankly, there wasn't that much written about him during those years. I mean, he was ubiquitous around the area in concerts and traveling through, and everybody loved him and everybody kind of had met him and heard him in concert. But the whole story of Doc hadn't really been committed to paper. And and uh, perhaps there were a lot of myths about Doc that, that you know, uh, perpetuated in, in, you know, at, at festivals and when people talked about the doc, I started to piece together a story in my mind and it came to be that, uh, I, I realized I met people who knew doc back in the fifties when he played on the street in Johnson city. Uh, and when he played in a, in a band, uh, called led by the great, uh, piano player, Jack Williams. It was Jack Williams based in Johnson City, led this band, had learned about Doc, invited Doc to participate in his band, which was, for want of a better way to describe them, they were kind of a country rockabilly band, but they played popular music, they played dance music, some old time music, um, but primarily country and uh, perhaps popular rockabilly crossover music and some show tunes and things like that. So it was a versatile band. And Doc was steeped in, in, in a diversity of American popular music at that time. Um, and and I, I realized that he was all around us in Johnson City. And so when I was given the invitation in 2018 to write the liner notes, and, and in fact, to compile the box set dedicated to the complete life works of Doc Watson, I, I, I finally had an opportunity to place on paper the pieces of the puzzle of Doc that I had been piecing together in my own mind over these years. And, and mind you, Doc was somebody I looked up to when I was in under 10 years old and first saw him at a, at a, at a performance and just was awed and amazed by his talent and his good humor and his uh, humanity and his interconnectedness with everybody around him, his band, his audience. He just, he had a, he had a magical gift at uh, communicating that really moved me as a kid. It continued to move me as an adult. So I accepted this role to uh, compile the tracks uh, for the box set, which was to be put out by craft recordings, which is uh, affiliated with Concord music. Uh, and I was also given the opportunity to write liner notes and I, done a lot of writing of liner notes so that was actually something i relished this this opportunity to take this role and to to tell doc's story happily for all concerned i hope but certainly happily for me it was an open-ended invitation i was not given a page limit mm -hmm. i was basically said write the story and we'll, we'll use it um and so it ended up being frankly almost book length maybe 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 not uh you know, an academic book length, but it was, it was a, it was a hefty tome that came out of this exercise. And all it was for me was piecing together 
in creating a, a, a filled in puzzle of who was Doc and why he was so meaningful to me, but also much more importantly to everybody. So I feel as if uh, that, that uh, you know, undertaking of writing liner notes to, uh, in conjunction with the box set dedicated to Doc's com- documenting Doc's complete career um, was, I believe, in, in some respects, uh, one of the first opportunities that anyone had had to tell this story. And I told it from my perspective, of course, but frankly, it's not really a personal essay at all because I had never met him. Uh, what I mean to say is I delved into the stories and the, the, that I had about Doc and, the, and, and the, the questions I had about his talent and his gift, and I explored those in my prose. But I also you know, pretty quickly realized that I can't tell the story of Doc Watson uh, from my limited experience. It, it's going to be limited. I want to tell a fuller story. And so I began a process of interviewing people. I ended up interviewing um, many people who knew Doc extremely well for, for decades and gracious souls who uh, answered questions and spoke with me on the phone on multiple occasions. And, and their quotes and their insights with, with their blessing went into the liner notes as well. So it's a, I think it's a multivocal interpretation of Doc's career and his life and his importance to all of us. And, uh, and in essence, I, I, I remain in Johnson city, Tennessee, realizing that this great artist was very much a part of my community here as much as he was, of course in North Carolina, but, but, but anywhere, I feel as if he was in some ways a citizen of the lives of people all over the, all over the world as I came to, to learn. And, uh, he was, he was a, a valued citizen of, musical communities everywhere. And that's really interesting. It's that exactly what you described there being sort of the confluence of a personal attachment to Doc's music. And that's also sense that it was, that that was a shared thing. Everybody has their own very personal attachment to what Doc did, but at the same time, it is such a shared joy as well. And that's one of the things I found just, you know, putting this episode together is the amount of people who've been generous enough to talk to me and, share thoughts and memories and connections and it's a it's a beautiful thing um and it it's interesting you were talking about doc as being seen as very much a musician of one particular area um and although i think you're you're absolutely right his music's gone everywhere he is still very uh grounded in in that area in a lot of people's perspectives and i wondered you're talking about sort of um appalachian culture and sharing that with people and and I wondered sort of how you feel Doc fits into that because he is so known for a geographic area as well as just being a global musician. Well, that was the great balancing act of Doc Watson. He remained in one place. He remained where he was born throughout his life. Um, he was a good neighbor to everybody. Um, he didn't know a stranger. He devoted his uh, Saturday mornings to going to the local music store when he was rich and well, not rich, but when he was famous. I don't think uh, the, the former was was really a, a, an issue for him, but uh, he was rich in spirit for sure and, and rich in achievement. And he shared that uh, connection to a music legacy that he embodied with younger generations at that music store. I mean, he was such a giver of 
of his gift to other people. Um, children uh, loved to talk with Doc there at that music store, and he could have been many other places, but that's where he chose to be. So that's how grounded he was. He was enriching the lives of others in his home community after he would get home from trips across the country and abroad, enriching lives of people elsewhere. So I think he felt at home in the world, uh, but he certainly was grounded in Appalachia and in his part of Appalachia bordering North Carolina and Tennessee, the mountainous region there and the, the, uh, the Blue Ridge area there. Um, and I would say that uh, he sometimes referred to Appalachia as his home base, but I feel as if he was maybe not an overt diplomat, but he was diplomacy was part of what he did. I mean, he promoted positive understanding of, uh, of Appalachia everywhere he went without having to beat the drum about it. He was, he was a very humble person and, and very aware of our common humanity. And I, I, I never felt as if he, uh, he understood what stereotypes were. And I think he, actively defied them in everything he did, but he never did so angrily. I think he did so just by the graceful example of a well-lived life and, 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 a, and a tolerance of, you know, the challenges that he faced. I mean, he was a very brave man to be touring the United States on the bus alone before he traveled with Merle and others later in his mm. career. Um, so, like I said, I, I think he just was a person who was at home in the world wherever he went, but he never forgot who he was. And who he was was, of course, being of the place from which he was born and the culture that uh, fostered him and enriched his life with music that he shared with others. So, again, it's it's that great uh, achievement, of, uh, that great balancing act of being many things in one lifetime. And that was Ted Olson, my final guest for this episode. Um, there's a second episode, and in that I'm going to talk to a lot more people who've seen Doc over the years, been influenced by Doc. Um, you know, some have, have worked with Doc, some didn't know Doc. There's a real range of people. I mean, I'm going to talk to Mike Marshall, Tim O'Brien. Um, I'm going to talk to Brian Sutton. I'm going to talk to Chris Eldridge. I'm going to talk to Laurie Lewis. There's such a, a range of fascinating stuff in this part two so please please do download part two as well um i will see you over there i hope you've enjoyed this uh yeah but i'll see you in part two bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by collins guitars and mandolins making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s visit collinsguitars.com and find out why